0: Hello
1: everyone, welcome to a new episode of UCU Campus Chats. My name is Kim Switzerland. I'm one of the tutors and lecturers at UCU uh, and I'm in economics actually. And I'm here today with my colleague, Mary Bouquet who is actually very, very recently retired from UCU. But before that, she was one of our lecturers in anthropology and art history and museum studies. Mary, could you maybe shortly introduce yourself?
0: Thank you very much, Kim, for inviting me. Um, Yes, as you said, my name's Mary Bouquet. Um, I am, well, I'm naturalized Dutch, so I have Dutch citizenship, um, which is uh, kind of a good way to introduce myself because people say sometimes, oh, you're so English, but I was simply (laughs) born in England. And... uh, So while I still have English, uh, an English passport, I am actually a Dutch national, a tax paying Dutch citizen. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a nice way to begin. But as I say, I was born in England, in the southwest of England, in a very rural area. And I grew up in a household that was full of books, but no television. Um, and I was fascinated by the degree of history that was kind of like all around you, because the house was about 350 years old, had a ghost. And oh, wow, okay. Well, <laughs> oh, that's very English, though. <laughs> yeah, I never saw the ghost, but an right. aunt of mine from Germany uh, actually saw her once. So this was a young girl who died in a fire in the house. Okay. Um, so you know, these kinds of things fascinated me, even though I I can't claim to have seen the ghost. Um, I find it very interesting. It was a very old house, very thick walls, very small windows, a spiral staircase, and kind of nestling into a Devon hillside. And of course, that whole environment of the Southwest of England is absolutely chock-a-block with prehistoric remains, which also fascinated me as a kid. So in a way you could say that combined with my father's cabinet of curiosities and his library, both of which intrigued me enormously as a child, this was kind of the setting to get really interested in history um, but also really interested in, in English and in writing above all. I actually wanted to be a writer when I was, uh, when I was young. Um, so, yeah, history was the thing that really fascinated me. I, took, I went to what is called a grammar school, in, or was called a grammar school in England. That meant that you had classics there. So what I studied um, at school was English history and Latin. I was appalling at Latin, I have to confess, but I absolutely <laughs> loved history and I loved English as well. So that was my background. Um, I used to go read in the uh, local bookshop at lunch times uh, when I was at school because they had books that we didn't have in the library, like Claude Lévi-Strauss totemism. I read the whole thing over the course of um, a term in, uh, in, in during uh, sort of lunchtimes. Anyway, that's just to say I took the Cambridge entrance uh, examination in history, but I went up to read um, archaeology and anthropology. That's a tripos, so it's a combination of three subjects. That's archaeology, social anthropology and physical anthropology, so Mm -hmm. it's already a little bit kind of liberal arts and science-y. I had done some archaeological excavation before, between school and university, and I found it really amazing, um, sort of excavating um, Neolithic sites in southwest of England. I loved it. Um, although I found the trowel, the trowel work was a bit heavy on the hands.
1: <laughs> yes. you know.
0: And when I got to Cambridge, I then discovered social anthropology, which I didn't know anything about, and of course I was blown away by it, as uh, young students frequently are. Um so yeah, at, at Cambridge, I after the first year, which is a broad study, a bit like we do, I specialized in social anthropology. And I was particularly fascinated by kinship and kinship is like the the nuts and bolts of social relations, informal social relations in a society. So, uh, I mean, that's a big area of theory in anthropology. And of course, this was the time of uh, sort of about third wave feminism as well. So everybody was talking about households, women's labor, these kinds of things, um, which was pretty interesting and very much part of what makes societies tick. So that was what I was really, really interested in. I was also very interested in anthropology at home. So, anthropology actually on your doorstep, rather than carried out in, you know, Highland New Guinea or wherever, although I should say immediately that reading all of the anthropological theory that was created in those contexts, in those colonial contexts, of course, but nonetheless very important historical foundations of the discipline really kind of uh, shaped my view and my wish to study kinship in my own society and actually very much at home because I chose to, um, for my PhD, to study um, a a parish quite close to where I grew up um, and to look in particular at the domestic economy. So household economy, so the division of labor, but to do that historically So looking at how household structure, formation, division of labor, and so on changed from the late 19th century to the present. So I combined historical archival research with uh, ethnographic observation. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a very long tradition in Cambridge and an important one. And it was also in the 1970s when I did this, late 1970s, it was the beginning of computer science. So my supervisor very much wanted me to use this kind of pristine um, computer science to take a look at parish records and those kinds of things. So I used computers in a very primitive way, yeah. but I still did use them. And it was interesting year to see- What
1: then? Now we're talking early 80s, I think, or?
0: What, sorry? A year? My PhD? Yeah. Early 80s? Uh, 1981. Yeah. yeah.
1: So this was before home computers were like widely distributed.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. We cannot, I mean, it's probably difficult for you to imagine what this kind of a world looked like, but it was, I mean, it, it's amazing to have lived through that transition um, from the time when computers were actually gushing out, well, perforated pink, uh, pink paper. Kind oh, of. you still remember that though? You can? <laughs> Okay, Okay. you're older than I thought. (laughs) Um, And uh, yeah, so that was really what I was doing. I was looking as an anthropologist, but also as a historian at the phenomenon of household structure, how it changes through times, because they were enormous households. They had sometimes 20 people in them, which were not only family but also servants because they had kind of uh, indentured laborers in there in the household, sometimes quite young children, but also agricultural laborers. So these were massive houses and massive households. And the domestic economy was arranged around kind of women being very active in farming, um, whereas what I was seeing Uh, in the late 20th century was women actually totally out of farming. So it was a very, very interesting transition. That was my basic question. Why? What happened? How did they get pushed out? And what were the consequences? What do they do now? And what they did now, my now being the 1980s, was actually to commercialize a portion of their domestic labor. So this is a really amazing thing to conceptualize because part of what they were doing for the family was of course non-commoditized and part was commoditized. So I was interested in seeing how they negotiated that boundary. Um, How do you distinguish between the same task which you do for free for this category of people that you call kin or family and this category of people you called visitors, that's the yeah. term that you use, who come in and who you perform this for. So there's yes. a kind of performativity to it as well. And these were the things that I was interested in looking at in those days. Um, and that's what I wrote my PhD about. And yeah, then I mean, then I left Cambridge and I went uh, to teach in Lisbon. Yeah, And I uh, then sort of, I continued teaching uh, about family and kinship, uh, using kinship theory, uh, talking about marriage. All of these are very important parts of anthropology. Um, That's the
1: social anthropology side. Social
0: anthropology, yeah. Yeah. And um, at the same time, because I'd been in Cambridge and I'd done some uh, uh, courses on Melanesian ethnography, I was invited at a certain moment in the mid-80s. I was asked, would you like to document a collection of Melanesian artifacts that are in the National Museum of Ethnology? Yeah. So I thought, well, that's interesting. Let's take a look at it. And uh, with a colleague, we we decided we would take on this collection. We would what we basically had to explain was, well, actually, what was this collection doing in Lisbon at all? Because there are no colonial connections to between Portugal and yeah. um, this area of the Pacific. Um, and so it was an interesting question back then. How would you um, these, this collection of about 110 pieces was in Lisbon for restoration, um, uh, conservation, um, but at the same time they thought, okay, when it's uh, conserved, when it's in a good condition again, we would like to exhibit it to the public. So then the question was, well, how do you do that? Do you exhibit it as art? And at this time, mid 80s was the beginning of all kinds of things going on in the museum world. Um, not least the infamous exhibition at the MoMA in New York of Mm -hmm. primitivism. And so I think that our colleagues, our older colleagues in the museum would very much have liked to exhibit this collection as pieces of primitive art in inverted commas. Um, But my colleague and I both um, uh, trained in history. thought that it would be very interesting, actually, to look into how the provenance of the collection, why it was in Lisbon, what it was doing there. And so that led to a very micro analysis of this collection, looking really at the numbers, uh, on sometimes on the pieces, at the archival lists, which we eventually uh, winkled out of the museum. They weren't at first uh, apparent at all um and then doing further because the whole thing was non-digitalized you have to imagine this if you have to document a collection in this condition (laughs) you have to go into a depot and you have to sit down with those things and really look at them you have to gather your um information together, and then you have to go off to places where you can find information. One of the places I went to was the Troben Museum in Amsterdam, and I got loads of help from there and pointing in the direction of um, colonial expeditions that were uh, mounted to this part of the Pacific in the late 19th century, early 20th century. And um, it was through putting together a photograph in one of those reports with a photograph of one of the objects in the collection that we cracked the code because we had sort of objects that had multiple um, different codes. So it couldn't be one whole collection. Also, it yeah. was from all over the place. It was from the Sepic, It was from Micronesia. It was from the Solomon Islands. It was from Papua New Guinea. So it was clearly not one collection. So we were really flummoxed by this. What could this be?
1: Yes, so someone made the decision, let's put all of these different things together. But why did they... Right,
0: exactly. So they put together these 110, collection of 110 things, and what we wanted to find out was why, when, how, what, you know, all of these questions. So that was indeed what we did. Um, we went back into those colonial reports. We found things in many different um, reports, some going up the Sepik River in Papua New Guinea, others from the coast, all kinds of things. Um, so we were able to sort of reconstruct what happened and we discovered that, in fact, what had happened was that these, this collection actually came from Berlin. It didn't come from directly from the Pacific at all. Ah. And so it was in the Berlin Museum Yeah. and it was put together in 1927 to... Uh, try to exchange it for an archaeological cargo, which had been impounded during the First World War um, in the port of Lisbon mm-hmm. when the Portuguese were on the side of the Brits. Yeah. And this archaeological cargo, which was a German uh, from a German excavation um, in Syria, was impounded. And so what the Berlin museums did was to use this kind of tiny sampler collection, as it were, giving kind of an idea of all kinds of different areas of the Pacific. They used it in exchange to get their archaeological cargo back again. So that was the story of that, which was a thrilling piece of detective work, (laughs) you can imagine. And um, we, as young researchers, um, found it absolutely amazing to do. Um, We not only had to research the collection, we also had to write this story up. Um, which we did in the shape of a catalog, so a catalog describing each of the pieces, but also trying to make sense of them by explaining the institutional exchange that went on, the colonial expeditions, Um, and what led to this point. But as you can imagine, this might look like child's play nowadays when collections are digitalized, but at that time, it was real kind of hands-on detective work. So that's to to explain to you how my interest in museums started, why I became so fascinated by uh, collections, by the making of exhibitions as well. It all happened in Lisbon. So basically,
1: where when you were in Cambridge, you already had that combination of physical and social anthropology. What your PhD was social anthropology, and then only when you moved to Lisbon, the physical aspect came back in again.
0: That's right. And how did you end up in Lisbon? Oh, that's a long story. But basically, this was the time of uh, this was the 1980s, and (laughs) this was these were the Thatcher years, and. To put, it, to, to put it quite bluntly, I mean, there really wasn't a lot of work opportunities for young PhDs um, in the UK. But via via, I mean, there was a possibility I had friends who had gone to Lisbon and that was how I ended up there. Yeah. OK, fair enough. And this was um, I should <laughs> add about Cambridge, um, the museum was not really and museum collections were really not at all fashionable in anthropology in the 1970s, 80s, beginning of the 80s. Um, this was considered at the time rather a kind of backwater of anthropology um, and not somewhere where you would kind of want to go and and I think that influenced me a lot in being so enthusiastic about kinship and that area and households yeah. and division of labor and commodity production and all of that seemed like the place to be yeah but then. I went to Lisbon and I had a completely different kind of understanding, a, a new perspective, which completely changed my life. I have to say, mm-hmm. I continued publishing in um, the area of kinship, genealogy, uh, English kinship, these kinds of things, um, and you know, still do a little bit. But I mean, my main area of interest is focused on museums, collections, exhibitions.
1: Yeah. And then from Lisbon, you ended up in the Netherlands at some point.
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, I I was in Lisbon for four and a half years, um, Mm -hmm. which were very important years to me. Um, I learned how to teach there. I learned Portuguese. Um, I got to understand how important museum collections were. Um, I became fascinated by... um, exhibitions um but at a certain moment I met my future husband and we kind of had to decide where we were going to live yeah and um at that stage of the game it seemed like a good idea to live in the Netherlands so (laughs) I decided to move to the Netherlands
1: okay and um yeah what made the Netherlands a good option at that time was was there a lot of work in the museum world here or was there yeah
0: Um, I hadn't really, I mean, I didn't think of it in those terms, quite honestly, Um, but when I got to the Netherlands, I immediately on the basis of the work I'd done in Lisbon, I was invited to curate another um, uh, exhibition, this time in, in Leiden. Yeah. at the National, uh, what was then the National Historic Museum, which is now Naturalis. Yeah. So that was a fascinating um, moment. So this was another piece of guest curatorship, you could say. Yeah. And I was invited to um, be the guest curator for the uh, Pitecanthropus Centennial Exhibition in 1993, yeah. um, which was to kind of commemorate the 100 years since Eugène Dubois had Mm -hmm. excavated um, the fossilized remains of what later became the type specimen of Homo erectus, Mm -hmm. which was called the Pithecanthropus, so the first, as it was then called, upright walking hominoid. So, you know, the moment when the ape man gets off all fours onto and goes bipedal. (laughs) So you can imagine that this was um, a thrilling opportunity um, to kind of contextualize this and and conceptualize this type specimen in a whole series of different ways, which is exactly what we did in the exhibitions department of the uh, National Museum of Natural History. Um, so it was a project of theirs, and um, there's a whole group of uh, exhibition specialists there, mm-hmm. plus the curator of the collection, a paleoanthropologist, Jean de Vos, and um, our task was to conceptualize this type specimen, which is a bit unpromising, you might think in a way, kind of in, a, in an interesting way and into um, the 17th century pest house in Leiden, which is also kind of an amazing context to do this. It's now part of Naturalis, um, but we used each division of the pest house as a different kind of stage or uh, screen, if you will, of the, uh, of the exhibition. So it was in sort of six stages. So and, would, and
1: the best house in the Netherlands would be like a house where people with the plague would be isolated from the rest of the community?
0: That's exactly right. Yeah, okay. yeah which is a very topical uh, matter. I <laughs> yeah. hadn't even thought of that, Kim. That's a, that's a brilliant connection.
1: Yeah, <laughs> <indeed>. <laughs> Yeah, I'm thinking like we haven't actually done that with people with corona, so it's a very different plague from what we're used to. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, But yeah, indeed, then that's... That will now be in the city center in Leiden, I imagine, because of course, if it was on the outskirts before, by now it will be in the in the city.
0: That's right. Yeah, it was it was way it was an amazing uh, museum actually, the old museum. I I love to go there. It's by the Garenmarkt in um, in Leiden, and had the most amazing depots. I mean, I remember once when we were selecting specimens ape and monkey specimens for the exhibition oh. going into spending a whole day kind of with the curator in the the kind of depot afterwards I was as sick as a dog I cannot imagine what kind of chemicals I was inhaling in that depot but anyway that's that's a, a little anecdote <laughs> you mentioned indeed
1: that while you were in Lisbon there was something basically your interest in museums was triggered Um, And then you continue that indeed in the Netherlands. What is it that most people don't understand about museums that makes them so fascinating? Or what was it that you weren't aware of until you were working on it?
0: Um, I think the thing that makes museums most attractive is what goes on behind the scenes. So it's like a theater. I mean, there's this kind of scene. There are these scenes that are put up for us. These exhibitions, and then there's the whole process of making them. There's the collections that are behind them. There's the research. There's the design. There's the there's the actual sort of physical production of these things. There's the writing of catalogues and stories and so on. I think that increasingly people want to know about this behind the scenes dimension yeah. of museums. I think that's that's actually where the fascination lies. If you create yeah. something that has this kind of very public face, this dimension of public culture, of course, it, 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 it's kind of logical in a way, and it's one of the trends, I would say, cultural trends of the last 20, 30 years that people want to know, well, what's going on behind here? I mean, that's where everything leads to in a way. So museums are a great kind of object lesson in this, I think, yeah. in a way. They, they tell us about our own epistemologies. They tell yeah. us about kind of how we think in a way. And that I find personally very, very fascinating about
1: them. Yeah, I think if you only visit museums on a superficial level, it comes across as sort of a neutral or objective history or art or whatever. But of course, behind the scenes, what's going on is what story do we
0: want to tell the world about ourselves? Exactly, and whose story as well, yeah. increasingly. So, I think what we're seeing now from the Rijksmuseum to the Mauritz House is this kind of digging into the colonial dimension of fine art, which yeah. is enormously exciting for art historians. Um, and I think for the rest of us as well, I think it's a, it's a new story, it's a new way of labeling things, telling stories about Johann Mauritz, for instance, um, the Brazilian as he's called in the Hague. Um, I mean, this having a whole set of different people looking at this from different perspectives is of course, a much more exciting way of going about exhibiting than that authoritarian voice that you were talking about. Although sometimes I think people miss that as well and they want that. So it's very contradictory as well. I mean, as soon as we get what we want, we want something else. (laughs) Yes.
1: And they both have their value of course, but the problem is that you can't use both at the same time. Yeah, true. Um, Because you already mentioned it shortly, like the Rijksmuseum, um, of course, famously renovated. It was closed for two years, I think, something like that. Uh, And you actually wrote about that as well in an article called Non-Stop Modernity, Renovating the Rijksmuseum. What did you see there in terms of the choices that were made when they were reopening and, and renovating?
0: Well, you know, one of the most fascinating things about that 10-year renovation process- Oh,
1: it was 10 years even, okay, sorry. It was
0: 10 years. It started in 2003 and it went open in 2013.
1: Yeah.
0: And one of the most fascinating things that I think is is diagnostic of of where the museum as institution sits within culture is that the Rijksmuseum decided to have behind the scenes tours. So you could go wearing builder's boots and a kind of fluorescent jacket and a hard hat. You could go into dangerous parts of the museum where there was no plaster on the walls and a man with a pneumatic drill kind of at work. And you could go kind of through uh, the decommissioned Rijksmuseum. And you can imagine fewer things more kind of thrilling than those kinds of expeditions. Um, And there's a wonderful film um, made about um, the new Rijksmuseum. I've temporarily forgotten the name of the director. She's very, very famous uh Uge Hohendijk, maybe yeah i can um, add it also to
1: the comment section later if you like
0: okay um and she followed this process uh through these 10 years through its ups and downs through the the kind of debates with the uh, Bond, the cyclists association. Um, <laughs> of course, it's the Netherlands, insisted yes. on being allowed to continue to cycle through the central wow. part of the Kuypers building and would not give that up. And, you know, this led to almost desperation on the part of the Spanish architects who just couldn't figure out how it could be possible that they had been commissioned. They'd won a competition yeah. to renovate the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam and now, the Featers Bond, the Cyclist <laughs> Union, comes along and says, Ho, oh, Homer, you can't have, you can't do the central part like that because yeah, yeah. you want to continue cycling through there. <laughs> yes. These kinds of stories um, are, of course, fascinating and very much part of what the how the Rijksmuseum picked up and did modernity as it was renovating. I mean, it went into this whole behind the scenes kind of dimension of culture very successfully, I would say, um, and kept its public kind of tuned in and and excited about it. Um, And I mean, I think their sponsors also got into this, like. ENG bank and all of them who made little films and reconstructed the Nachtwacht and things like this um, in a shopping mall and everybody got very excited about it. So I think it was a marvellous, they they turned what could have been a kind of death moment into a kind of marvellous, long drawn out kind of moment of tension and excitement and thrill in a way which is part of this kind of spectacular dimension to yeah. museum culture, I would say.
1: And is that new,
0: that spectacular dimension? Or was it always No, new? I mean, you can find it even in the 19th century or even particularly in the 19th century with world exhibitions, um, dioramas, panoramas, these kinds of things. It's always been there. It's yeah. a, a very funny thing which happens around the beginning of the 19th century. About 1800 is where Julia Nordcraft posts it when she's looking at Tyler's Museum and um, how they kind of turn a demonstration table there into an exhibition case a display case with glass on top of it so she dates it to about 1802 in Tyler's Museum so this spectacular dimension has always been there but it kind of comes and goes and it gets reconfigured and All kinds of things happened to it, of course, through the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, So it's a very different spectacular, I would say, in the early 21st century from what we might have seen in the mid 19th century, obviously.
1: Mm Because if you look at the Rijksmuseum before and after, there are the behind the scenes things which are different. But for a visitor who doesn't go behind the scenes, what are like the main differences if they had visited before 2003 or after 2013?
0: Mm. I would say it, they, they did their best to try to make the Rijksmuseum intelligible by ordering it in time periods <laughs> per floor. Although it doesn't always work because, of course, the 17th century is up on the second floor. So then you get a a bit of a a muddle going on. But I mean, in general, you have I think it's spatialized in terms of time in a much clearer way. The design uh, by the French designer Wilmot is, Mm -hmm. is very transparent. It's very clear, very different from how they were doing it earlier on when, I mean, the whole of the inside courtyards of the original Kuyper's building um, had been filled up with exhibition space. So like a, a like a like um, uh, what's the word, a honeycomb in a way. It was a sort of labyrinth. The two yeah. both those now empty or uh, empty courtyards or reception areas for the public um, were gradually taken over. They should have been open and light as as architect developers intended them, but they got built up and filled up and stuffed with collection. And what they essentially did, I think, at the end of the Um, 20th century was to say okay now we have to declutter we have to make the museum transparent and light again Mm -hmm. we also have to make facilities for the public uh, much more attractive so that you actually arrive in a very nice courtyard and you have the feeling that you're being received and you're being directed and That you have an idea where you're going so you don't have this kind of chaotic feeling of going into a tiny little entrance which is how it was before 2003 and then landing in a labyrinth which was almost really hard to decipher unless you were really had a lot of knowledge of art history and history and dutch history of course it had its charm um, in that condition but i don't think it was um, it was kind of prepared for the numbers of visitors that started to come <laughs> Yes, by the end of the 20th century. So this was very much um, about the public as yeah. well.
1: And, and does that, because those different choices that were made where it was like, we want to be more accessible to the public, we want it to be lighter. Is that reflective of changes in society as a whole or just different
0: ideas about the function of museums or, or what changes I think it reflects also a sort of economic dimension of tourism, mm-hmm. world tourism, yeah. um, uh, city. What's it called? City hopping or something? Um, city marketing or uh, what's uh, city trips? City. Yeah. yeah. I mean, because Amsterdam, of course, is on numerous um, city trip lists. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, there came to be more and more visitors. So the museum had the sense that it was kind of running after, um, after the event. And I think it wanted to sort of gather its strengths together, yeah. uh, regroup and be in charge of the situation rather than yeah. being accused sometimes on social media, which started yeah. to come up at the beginning yeah. of the 20th, uh, 21st century of not being prepared or, uh, for yeah. visitors. I mean it's a competitive thing between national museums. So the British Museum kind of had a a makeover around the millennium, well, and the Louvre as well, and you cannot run behind. So, you know, this was the argumentation used by the Rijksmuseum um, to be the recipients of government money and funding, which was a massive investment, and which was all about tourism, of course, and tourist income. So there is a very, very important economic dimension to this, but also a prestige dimension, of course. I mean, Dutch culture is very, very important um, economically, but also as a kind of matter of prestige and pride and um, kind of saying what your identity is, where you stand in the world. These are museums are extremely important. Uh, Carte de visite, uh, you could say at this level as well. Yeah,
1: Yeah. So there was sort of also a pressure to say, from being maybe a little bit more inward looking beforehand and serving whoever you thought was your community. To know you may need to be accessible to a much wider audience, you need to look outward. Exactly,
0: exactly. Yeah and this is also connected to international museum organizations of Mm -hmm. course um, and participation of of Dutch professionals within these organizations um, and then having to sort of or watching what was going on elsewhere and feeling that you had to sort of be part of this and not be left out of it. So I think these are very, very important considerations. The whole digital revolution going on as well at the end of the nineties, this also altered the way people think and thought and think about uh, their collections, their heritage um, and kind of making things accessible to the public, um, responsibility, accountability, all of these kinds of things. Now, of course, at
1: UCU, you were involved in the starting of the Cultural Heritage Internship Program, Mm -hmm. and that consists of a a number of classes at UCU, among them indeed, the the anthropology of art and the materiality of culture, but also a class on heritage, which is, of course, directly related to this, as well as an internship preparation course. what what do you cover what do you cover in those classes where you say these are really the things that people need to know before they go and work in a museum? How do you translate that in your teaching?
0: Okay, so if you go and do a, a placement in a museum, um, as an undergraduate, you're already in a pretty privileged uh, situation because mostly um, uh, undergraduate students are not admitted for this. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean unless it's really menial work. So if you want to be uh, able to do some research, if you want to kind of learn research skills which you didn't have, to see how museum systems work, um, to perhaps research a a collection item, uh, an artist, uh, Mm -hmm. to uh, research for an exhibition, something like this, you just can't walk in there kind of um, from ground zero, as it were. So What the UCU Cultural Heritage Program, as we renamed it, is is about is this wider education that you need, preparation, before you can really enter this this kind of magical world and uh, participate in it um, in a kind of um, meaningful way. Mm -hmm. So the first course, um, uh, preparatory course, is Museum Studies. And that really gives you a very good idea about curatorship, the history of curatorship, um, how museums, the public museum has changed since the beginning of the 19th century, late 18th, early 19th century. Um, It also teaches you about patronage. So how this works, how um, museums are able to um, kind of have nice exhibitions and collections and so on who are the kinds of individuals who have also contributed alongside governments. So these are the two main threads. You also, you have to analyze exhibitions in that course. Mm -hmm. Um, So you go out and look and actually use a technique of of kind of describing as we call it uh, an exhibition. So you know how it's put together. Mm discuss that a lot Um, and you actually at the end of the course you actually have a go at making an exhibition as well we had to do this digitally last year um, but the year before the students actually made an exhibition in lock a it was amazing so we're really going into, well, what is curatorship? Who are the people who make things move in museums, um, who work with collections? How have their ideas about exhibitions changed? What is current thinking? These are the kinds of things you get in museum studies. Um, And in the heritage course, we go deeper into the history Um, of the rise of monuments, for example, from uh, antiquity um, to the Renaissance and right through the 18th century um, uh, up to the present. And I mean, in that course, also there there has always been um, an excursion. In the past, it was to the British Museum. So students had the opportunity to become acquainted with uh, collections there which was an amazing opportunity. Um, More recently we've been in uh, Bruges in Belgium and that was also an amazing opportunity to see how uh, kind of in a medieval um, and neo-gothic city um, the Collections that were made in situ, uh, created in situ are actually mm-hmm. used today in a UNESCO World Heritage Program. So what we do in the heritage course, I would say, is to put the museum into a bigger context, um, the context of heritage, mm-hmm. um, which is a much wider definition uh, or, or uh, concept and has a long history. Um, and we try to, in that way, pro- allow them to see well, what their tasks, small tasks, perhaps in the yes. museum, actually mean in a br- in a broader kind of historical and uh, theoretical sort of framework. Yes. So when you have done those two courses, you actually have a very good um, grasp, I think, of, well, the nuts and bolts of mm-hmm. uh, what, it, what museums do, but also the broader kind of historical and theoretical embedding of yes. those activities, I would say. And the Heritage Course also looks more cross-culturally mm-hmm. um, and looks at colonial heritage and at more recent um, efforts of collaborative and kind of world heritage really. So what Mm -hmm. people are doing in Southern Africa or wherever with um, their their particular uh, versions of heritage. So it's a broader, more comparative thing, which I think is very, very important uh, nowadays to be um, thoroughly au fait with this. So I would say it's um, in a way it's where art history meets anthropology. Um, So, you know, this is where I think the two disciplines plus history Help yeah. one another enormously um, to come to grips with what is valuable, considered valuable in different societies and the reasons why and yeah. what's going on right now. What are the tensions? What are the frictions? Yeah. Um, but also, what are the achievements? What are yeah. the debates? So these are the kinds of things that you get to know about before you go into that behind the, the scenes kind of area and yeah. are asked to research I don't know, a small collection item or an artist or whatever. So you can understand your task in a more academic way. And this is why we call it an academic internship. It's not work experience. You would never get in there unless you wanted to, uh, I don't know, photocopy things uh, for the director or something. (laughs) Um, So I think it's, it's kind of really the least you can do as an undergraduate student um, to kind of earn a place maybe inside one of these amazing institutions to which our students um, have gone and go. Yeah. Okay. And you
1: guys did such a marvelous job setting it up. If you look at the museums that are in there, the British Museum in London, the Rijksmuseum in the Netherlands, the Convent in Utrecht, of course, the Heritage uh, Foundation in New York uh is it the foundation or am i getting the name wrong now
0: um hold on i'll have to look this one up um the claims the claims conference it is called... claims
1: conference that's the name sorry yeah. I'm completely wrong um but yeah you guys did such an excellent job building it up tiana Jacolay is of course now continuing it as well um The last big project you did at University College Utrecht, however, is um, the book that you were the main editor of, which is about writing across the liberal arts and sciences. Uh, And that was based on the scholarly stories at UCU. Could you explain a little bit about what that is?
0: Yes. Scholarly stories started in 2017. um, And it was an initiative simply to enable us to get to know one another better. Mm -hmm. Um, Our backgrounds, our... And our in
1: these days is the employees, uh, the professors, and the, uh, the support staff at uh, University College. Everybody,
0: actually. Yeah, everybody. Yeah. yeah. So it was, yeah, at the level of faculty and staff. Um, mm-hmm. And um, just to hear about our fields of knowledge um, and interest and, you know, what brought us basically to yeah. UCU. So, you know, it was an amazing uh, set of stories and, um, opportunities, really, to to listen to one another. And at a certain moment, we thought, hey, wouldn't this make a book, actually? Wouldn't this make a, a, couldn't we write a book together? We can talk a lot, but can we write together? So this was the idea. And the idea, and and Coase Sanders joined. um, He took over the chairing of the scholarly stories. and Amika Mayo joined um, when we were at the, at the stage of finding a publisher. So this was you know a very nice collaborative effort that in the end, I think we had 20 um, mm-hmm. 20 people writing. Um, um, yeah, sorry. what was your question again? Yeah.
1: No And I mean, it's a beautiful insight into indeed how different disciplines are different and how they contribute to the arts and sciences and what they take out of it. and the added value of it really. Um, so it's a beautiful book so if people are interested in that it's available from amsterdam university press and if you search for mary bouquet's name that book will come up um yeah and then actually i just have one final question to ask you um for students that are in the netherlands right now whether they're international students or dutch students doesn't really matter so much What museum do you recommend they visit, which is a little bit off the beaten path? Because, of course, we all know the Rijksmuseum, we all know the Van Gogh Museum. But what's a museum that you say, oh, that's such a pearl and too few people know about it?
0: (laughs) Um, That's a very hard question, Um, (laughs) Kim. I'm very torn between saying uh, Tyler's Museum in Harlem. Yeah that's for you if you want to kind of get a glimpse of the late 18th century in the Netherlands at the very Mm -hmm. core of the museum and then all the bits that they built on in the 19th century right up to the the 20th and the present. So that would be one thing and I'm greedy of course so I want to.
1: Um, The
0: other one is that the, the kind of other extreme would be um, the Krüller-Müller Museum. Ah, uh, yes. On the Hoogeveenlaan. Look, you have to get onto a train. You have to get onto a bus if you don't have a car. Um, go to Otterlo, and there you can get a bicycle, and then you yeah. cycle across this amazing park. And there, in the middle of it, is this museum, founded by Helene and Anton Krüller-Müller back in the 1930s. Um, I'm just reading Anton, a biography of Anton Kruller-Muller, which is called Leven op credit," Mm -hmm. uh, living on credit. And I understand more about the kind of, uh, kind of the economics of the Netherlands at the the turn of the 20th century now than I ever did. I mean, his wheeling and dealing is is totally fascinating. So, Apart from that, his wife managed to build this amazing collection, and after her death in 1940, a series series of very good uh, museum directors built the collection beyond Mm -hmm. her kind of closed collection. As she saw it, it was was finished. So what do you do then? Well, they expanded the um, sculpture garden and the contemporary art collection. So they have a marvelous kind of, Contemporary art collection, sculpture garden, yeah. um, and the Krüller-Müllers are buried on site, so their grave okay. is there, together with Sam van Daventer. <laughs> now I'm not going to tell you who Sam van Daventer is because it would take too long, but it was truly a menage a trois.
1: So, okay, well that's something to Google. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, thank you so much for your time, uh, especially because, of course, everything now is free time. So <laughs> even more. Thank you so much. Um, I hope you yeah, you have a wonderful time. There will be plenty of more museum visits in your near future. I'm sure there are, actually. And you can now, of course, go at any moment you want to. Um, so, yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kim.